This program and its online content contains audio and information about traumatic events that may be triggering to those who have experienced something similar. It may also be unsuitable for younger listeners. Welcome to Migration Trail, the project that uses maps, data and audio to join the dots of a story spread across Europe and beyond. And welcome to Calais, one of the more enduring temporary stop-off points on many people's journey to Europe. You may have heard it referred to as the jungle. It comes to be called so because that's what many people making these kind of journeys call sleeping rough. To them, a jungle is also a kind of Sherwood forest, a place that's not really controlled by the state, where there is a sense of existing in the gaps of society and the law. The camp at Idomeni was similar in this sense, as were many other places along the irregular migration routes into the EU. Informal settlements are common along these routes, like the brick factory in Subotica, on the Serbian-Hungarian border, for example, where people stay while they attempt to cross that border. The camp at Calais just happens to be one of the more well-known. Jungle is a term whose meaning has evolved. When used in the media, it tends to be in connection with Calais and is now associated with outright lawlessness and criminality and even has racist connotations. So, welcome to Calais, a place where, for over a decade, people attempting to travel to the UK have informally gathered because there's a bottleneck in their journey. In 2015 and 16, a longer-term community started to develop here, around a collection of self-made ramshackled structures and shelters, and for a time, much more. We have, I mean, we have such a beautiful place in here. We have got a jungle radio. We have got library, we have got classes, we have got schools, we have got women's and children's centre, we have got language learning centre, youth centre, we are about to make young men's centre, we are about to make social places in here where people can do social activities within educational activities. It's, it's like a town to us right now. We have made this place out of a jungle, out of, out of a nothing. Mohammed Nabi is from Afghanistan. He worked with British and American troops there. When we spoke to him, he was hanging out in the caravan of a Sudanese man called Samir. And both men felt that the media's portrayal of the people living in the Calais camp belies who they really are. We have got many professional people here. We have got highly skilled people here. While they can be a big use in the UK, when they're going to UK, we have got engineers here, we have got doctors here, full-time doctors we have in the jungle, from refugees. We've got technicians, electricians, yeah. Afghans, Syrians, Eritreans, Ethiopians, Iraqians, Sudanese, Kurdish, Iranians, Indians. We've got more than 10 nations here and we are living like one country. We have no problems amongst each other. We have got representatives for different communities who are working day and night here with different organizations and we have created such a Amazing place with the support of volunteers who are supporting us with their donations and with their presence inside the jungle.
The camp is essentially a shanty town on the edge of the French town of Calais. Calais lies on the English Channel, directly across from Dover. In fact, it's close enough that lots of people there had UK SIM cards because they could get UK phone reception. It's also the closest point between the European continent and the UK, with 40 ferries and hundreds of freight and passenger trains making the crossing each day. It's a key point in the journey if you want to go to the UK, because with so many boats and trains, there are lots of opportunities to successfully hide in one. The fact that the UK is an island makes it impossible to cross any other way. And ultimately, it's a numbers game. There's a low chance of success, but lots of opportunities to try, so that eventually you should get lucky. There are lots of other countries that people are trying to get to, of course, across Europe. They tend to choose places where they already know the language, or because they have friends and family there, and it would be easier to find work. And for the people here, the UK is their choice. On a clear day, you can see the other side. The white cliffs of Dover shimmer in the distance, just over 20 miles away. At night, the lights along the coast draw their own border. These are sights made all the more poignant if you're someone who's travelled thousands of kilometres over many weeks, months or even years, only to be stopped within view of your final destination. This is where the journey tends to take a pause, or sometimes ends completely. The English Channel and the France-UK border are the bottleneck, the barrier. The English Channel is much wider than the Turkey-Lesvos crossing, and in a sense, it's the UK's strongest border control. It's simply too dangerous to cross in a small boat or dinghy, though some have tried. It's one of the busiest shipping channels in the world, and the coasts are much more heavily patrolled than on the Greek-Turkish border. Some have even tried to walk through the Eurotunnel, the 50-kilometre-long train tunnel that runs from France to the UK. Only one has made it alive. The Eurotunnel, a car, truck and rail service between Calais and the UK, has seen a lot of change in the last couple of years, since the population of the camp and the number of attempts to get on trucks and trains has increased so greatly. There are something like 1,700 police officers in the Calais area now whose responsibility is to ensure public order. And ensuring public order means keeping traffic flowing on motorways, um, means ensuring that... Uh, John Keefe is its Director of Public Affairs. He describes how the situation for the company changed from early 2015. In the early part of the year, the issue was, was really one of damage to trailers, damage to the curtain sides or the roofs, which were the easily accessed parts, damage to locks where they were broken so that people were trying to climb in. As the security has improved and it's become much harder for people to get anywhere near the terminals, there have been more incidents of large crowds threatening behaviour damage to truck cabs and windscreens and it became plain that this was just a very small part of a much larger migration flow that had been under the radar and it was getting bigger much very quickly. Eurotunnel realised it had become the focal point of a crisis because it provides a service that gets people and goods to the UK. And an increase in the numbers coming across the Mediterranean meant an increase in the numbers who arrived at Calais. Migration 
seen from a business perspective as a problem because it impacts on the business you can do. But the business can't stop it and the business can do very little other than protect. So we had to engage with a wider audience, uh, governments, NGOs, um, uh, interested associations, the local authorities, the police. We can keep them out, but they keep coming. Our terminal is actually a very dangerous place. And at the peak of this crisis in the summer months, um, people were getting hurt and even killed uh, on our terminal. That was happening because they didn't understand the risks that they were taking. And this is a population who has taken incredible risks to get here. Crossing the Sahara on the back of a truck, crossing the Mediterranean on a sinking boat is not something to take on lightly. But it's actually even more risky coming onto a railway at night with very quiet trains that are huge but travelling at very high speeds with high voltage electricity which can kill if you even get, get close to it with trucks and cars moving around at speed as well and so a lot of our engagement with the uh, migrant community has been about safety distributing leaflets and putting up posters that explain the risks of coming onto the terminal from a pure safety perspective we're not going to stop somebody who's got a clear intent to to try and get across but we can at least try and help them look after themselves. In the landscape in and around Calais, a lot of fencing and double fencing has popped up in the last couple of years, particularly around the entrance to the Eurotunnel, the port and the highways leading to both. Since security measures have been dramatically increased, the risks people take have been greater. In July 2015, Authorities reported 2,000 attempts to scale the fences of the Eurotunnel in a single night. The increasing numbers of people coming to Calais to try and get to the UK has been met with an increase in security. But even though more people are trying, there aren't necessarily more people getting through. So there's a bottleneck here. Calais has been an issue for over 10 years. Nothing's happened, or the only things that have happened have made it worse. The jungle just keeps moving. So the, complete the camp at Calais has existed in some form or other since 1999 and has had several locations on the outskirts of Calais. The most notorious was a camp that existed from early 2015 to late 2016, next to the highway that led to the port. In January 2015, it was estimated that 600 people were living there, in an area that's about the size of 50 soccer pitches. But six months later, that number had swelled to 5,000. And at its height a year later, there were more than 9,000 people encamped there. It was located about five kilometres out of town, at the end of a large industrial area, near some chemical factories. To get there, you had to pass under a motorway that leads to the port. That's where you would usually see a couple of minibuses, each with six French national police kitted out in body armour, sitting in their van, standing chatting outside, or standing on the bridge, looking down over the camp. In the underpass leading to the camp, there was a piece of graffiti by the artist Banksy. He spray-painted a picture of Steve Jobs, son of a Syrian immigrant, with an old Apple computer in hand and a sack, presumably containing his belongings, slung over his shoulder. Later it was vandalised with the tagline, London Calling. On the other side of the underpass, you'd enter the camp. Muddy roads led north and south through the camp, 
lined with single-storey shacks made from timber, tarps, plywood and blankets. This crossroads was the camp's business district, which housed countless shops and restaurants, as well as some community buildings. This was also the place where the black market in goods like phone chargers opened up each evening once it got dark. Spreading out beyond the shops were the tents and wooden shelters where people actually lived. Most refugee camps have outside support from governments and aid agencies. The camp in Calais wasn't like that. Everything here was built by the people themselves, with support coming from teams of volunteers who mobilised over the course of 2015 as the rapidly growing number of people living rough in Calais started to make the headlines beyond the north of France. For nearly a year, the government provided just three fresh water taps and 20 latrines for the thousands of people living here. There was no garbage collection. Eventually, though, the authorities relented and contracted ACTED, an NGO, to install more toilets and water points, improve the roads through the camp and collect garbage. Phone reception was really poor, but you could get Wi-Fi at the camp library, Jungle Books. The library stocked lots of dictionaries, books for kids and had the latest information on migrant rights and how to apply for asylum in the UK. It also held English classes, and on one of its walls, someone posted a makeshift alphabet. A is for Afghanistan. D is for David Beckham. F is for fingerprints. Y is for YouTube and Yasser Arafat. The conditions in the camp were, simply put, pretty grim, and the government had done little to improve them. The roads through it were dirt, and there was no electricity, but there were plenty of generators that ran constantly. I think Calais is a wonderful example of, for 10 plus years now, politicians across Europe literally, you know, putting their hands over their eyes and sticking their fingers in their ears and going, la 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 la, it's not happening. Right? It's, it's absolutely. I, I Polly Pallister Wilkins specialises in humanitarian intervention and border control. No politician wants to take responsibility for this. They hope that it'll go away. They hope that they'll make the situation so horrible that people will go away and leave. That's not the case. Given the low success rate, it would often take people several months of trying to make the crossing before they succeeded. And when you stay that long in a place, you start to need more than just a simple place to sleep. Small businesses and organisations sprung up, like restaurants, Barber's shops, churches, mosques, bakeries, and even a legal centre run by French and British lawyers who assisted with asylum claims. A lot of these things also provided a source of income to others in the camp who'd given up, at least temporarily, on their dream of going to the UK. The restaurants in particular were important points for social contact. They had electricity and a warm place to sit, so people could gather there and also charge their phones. There are extension cords everywhere. Plus, they served terrific food. And they ran like regular businesses elsewhere in town, opening at 9am, closing at midnight. The large quantities of food were bought at the local cash and carry or delivered from the butcher each morning. Or, in the case of basmati rice, imported from the UK, because that sort of high-quality rice was difficult to come by in France, and the restaurants had standards to maintain. They were also used as emergency accommodation for people when they first arrived. 
a place to tide them over until the morning, when they could get a shelter, bedding and anything else they needed. Tuesday, for example, was shoes day, but you had to be on time and lucky to get your size. Everyone needed shoes in the camp, which meant there was a queue of people already there ahead of the distribution time and some frustration when it was over. Shoes finish. Not finish. Finish. Not Sorry. Finish. Sorry. There were rain jackets on Mondays, pants on Thursdays. It was the only way to bring any kind of order to the donations that came in. Donations that were sorted by a constantly changing team of volunteers in a nearby warehouse. All right. So, hi, I'm Debs, volunteer from the US. And uh, this is where the magic happens. The mountain, the entire mountain of clothing over there gets put into these boxes over here. And that happens in three stages. First stage, male, female. Then it gets sorted into trousers, tops and jumpers, and jackets. Then the people on this side take from those three categories... The kind of society that arose in the camp in Calais shouldn't really be surprising. After all, if you leave people somewhere for long enough, they'll do what people do. They'll create a civilization, even if your duration of stay in a place is uncertain. So there was something very human and valuable here that briefly came into being. But it wasn't allowed to exist for long. In January of 2016, French authorities cleared a swathe of 100 metres next to the main road heading to the port, citing safety reasons. People trying to stow away on trucks would often climb or cut through the fence and throw things or put themselves in the path of trucks, hoping the drivers would stop. When the authorities cleared the area next to the road, the people who had shelters or businesses there were given three days to move elsewhere within the camp. Accommodation for 1,500 people in the form of converted shipping containers had been placed in a cordoned-off area of the camp. But people showed little interest in going to live there. They'd built their own places, and the container camp lacked a lot of the facilities, like communal cooking areas or running water, that they had in their own communities within the camp. There was also a concern that they would be fingerprinted and forced to apply for asylum in France if they took a spot in the containers, which would mean giving up on the dream of going to the UK. We picked up houses and moved them. We, we shifted things on low loaders. We, you know, just rapidly rebuilt stuff. Um, a lot of the stuff we attempted to reuse from the old shelters. Uh, we had to put people up in tents. This is what I mean by beginning to look... Tom Radcliffe is one of the founders of Help Refugees, one of the main volunteer organisations in the camp. Their mission was to distribute donations collected in the UK and help build shelters in the camp. He'd just finished moving some of those shelters that were near the road to other places in the southern half of the camp when he heard that authorities were planning on clearing that as well. We were still rehousing the last of the people who were moved when we got this news so we were just about kind of you know beginning to come to the end of the housing which you know I mean, we worked so hard to try and get everyone in a shelter by the time the freeze came in and it was about the time of the freeze we were told we had to move them I mean it's impossible not to believe that that is absolutely calculated I mean this time we were told you've got to clear half the camp now um, and you've got a week, but of course now there is nowhere for people to go. 
So the French government is saying that there are 800 people in the South Parton camp. That is like an extremely dark joke. We're probably talking again about over 2,000 people. That number is a bit low. There were actually around 3,000 people living in that part of the camp who suddenly had to find a space in the already overcrowded northern half. Only 600 places were available in the container camp. They came in on force and people would maybe be away getting their lunch or having or their breakfast or having a shower or whatnot and come back and have no shelter. It was very traumatic. Hetty Colhoun works with Help Refugees and the Auberge de Migrants. aggressive manner. It got worse than that. We had tear gas canisters fired into shelters with people living in them to get them out so that they could bring it down. There were people pulled off roofs violently, um, fires got set because of tear gas canisters, canisters, other people set fires, and it just was this really chaotic and stressful time for everybody involved. For us, to be honest, there was a lot of tension and uncertainty in the camp after two eviction orders were delivered within weeks of each other. Volunteers and migrants were unsure whether fighting the French state in court would improve the situation because it appeared to be part of a policy of deterrence on the government's part. But they did mount legal challenges to the evictions anyway. Unless you have the provisions for people, then you are not going to get rid of what you see as the issue, you're actually going to increase it because what little infrastructural support there was, you are dismantling, which meaning the situation for people is getting more more desperate, um, which puts more pressure on your local economy and your communities. Certainly, if I was thinking logically, I would go, right, unless I can provide adequate housing, adequate support and services for people, I'm not going to dismantle and destroy the, the little that they have. Um, and we are helping the prefecture right now. We are providing the things that they should be providing. I don't want to be here. I don't want this organisation to be here. Ideally, it should be our governments, it should be the authorities um, that we have elected that are doing their job, that are doing these things. So once they do it, we'll step back, we'll step away happily and hand over the plate to the people that should have done it in the first place. There were offers to take people who wanted to claim asylum in France to other accommodation centres throughout France, but most preferred to stick with their plan of trying to get to the UK. Up until then, most of their experiences with the French people had been with the riot police and those with British people had exclusively been with the volunteers in the camp, reinforcing their decision. Mohamed Nabi. We want a life with a dignity, with respect, with solidarity and peace. If I'm going to live with someone who is not willing me to be there, what's the point being in such a country where people are against me? So they either moved to the northern part of the camp or decided to pay a smuggler to make the crossing instead of continuing to try on their own. Some, though, had given up trying. Jana Riggs was a single mother who left her three children behind in the Philippines and wound up in Libya teaching at an elementary school. She fled when her apartment was destroyed by a bomb and found herself getting on a small boat to get away. She didn't even know where. Later, she found that she'd arrived in Italy. Jana had been in Calais for eight months and had tried to get to the UK a few times, the first time via the Eurotunnel. The second time, she took a different route and was stopped by pepper spray. We walk in uh, beside the road and then police coming and then they are spray us so sad. And everybody, you know, 
we got you know, spray we cannot saw anything and everybody running and one of my friend uh, running and then the the car is beat her and he's died on the spot died everybody running and then uh, you know I just scared I said okay I stopped going to the dry uh, because I just thinking if I'm getting accident I'm died what happened to my children in the Philippines yes yeah life of refugees is not easy really it's not easy Tom Radcliffe you know the real tragedy here is that people who are so wealthy and so powerful are this frightened of a small number of people who cannot possibly hurt them and who desperately need their help. There have been protests in Calais on both sides, by some who are tired of the growing migrant population and some who oppose the French state policy that created this place. Karen Moynihan works with Refugee Youth Service an organisation that helps children, especially those travelling alone, at various informal settlements in the EU. She spent a year working with them in Calais. You can see the right-wing movements getting larger and larger and gaining more ground really fast. Countries putting borders up, brutal people, like ways that people are... Hundreds of people have gone to hospital because they have been attacked by fascists. No actions from the police. What if hundreds of French people would have gone to hospital? What would have happened? Would you think the circumstances would be the same? But there have also been claims of police brutality. Although anyone was free to come and go, the entrance to the camp was ringed with CRS, or France's National Police. Most of the time they were sitting in vans and not engaging, but when things got tense in and around the camp, they often appeared in riot gear and used tear gas to get things under control. There's huge levels of violence in Calais. The CRS were absolutely brutal with children and adults, like to the point that we, on numerous occasions, had to visit children who were hospitalised. They were beaten so badly. People arrived in Calais with a lot of hope. After all, it's the last stop before reaching one's final destination. And the EU is supposed to be safe, right? Set against that belief in safety, the violence in Calais was especially traumatic. The health conditions in general in the camp were very poor. In addition to injuries sustained whilst trying to stow away or in confrontations with the police, the most common illnesses were scabies and a persistent cough from sleeping in the damp and cold for long periods. The failed attempts at crossing, poor sanitary and health conditions and a general sense of defeat often led to exasperation. For those on the outside, though, the situation in Calais, with the camp and the attempts to stow away on trucks, was just as frustrating. John Roberts is a trucker who regularly makes the Calais-UK crossing and has been doing this for 20 years. Back then, things were different. You could move freely around Calais, around the Calais area. Calais was a wealthy area, you got respect. Now you cannot stop anywhere near Calais for fear of getting mugged. Killed even, your truck damaged, trailers slashed open, loads damaged. They're not asylum seekers, they are criminals trying to get into England. They've tried throwing things in front of the truck, running in front of my truck to try and make me stop. 
which I will not. I will actually put my foot down and drive faster to try and run them over because you're putting your life in danger if you stop. They'll try and jump in the back of your truck as you're driving down the road. They will slash your curtains and hide in the load if you're parked in Cali waiting to get in and go for a boat or go for a train. They will crawl under your, under your axles, lie on top of the axles of your trailer. On top of the truck there you have a roof spoiler. If you're stopped, they will try and climb in a roof spoiler and hide on top of the roof of your cab, anything. At the port and the entry to the Eurotunnel, trucks started to go through an increasing number of checks. A physical check, heat sensors, dogs. The checks do not work. The French checks are not perfect. I've been through checks and through a heartbeat where you jump out of your vehicle, they put three monitors onto the vehicle, it will detect the heartbeat. They say it's okay, off you go. I went through one day and there were two immigrants in the trailer. The heartbeat signals did not work. If we catch people in the truck, if we're on the French soil, we get the French police. They ask us where we stopped, where we parked or where we've been. They get them out, take them away, dump them outside the port. Nothing more is done about it. If the English authorities catch us, find people in the, in the back, then we are presented with a fine. Our boss is presented with a fine for trying to bring immigrants in the country even though we have been through French checks that are supposed to pick up on immigrants being in there. Many drivers are walking away from the job because of the dangers in Cali. A lot of companies are walking away from it because of the dangers in Cali. The British government are the problem because they are allowing the immigrants to stay when they come in. Why? They're already in a free country. The problem is not going to go away. Calais is a perfect example, of, and also the more controls you put in place, well, the more, just the worse the situation deteriorates, and the more the situation deteriorates. I think, you know, we have to understand that, that certain groups of people want to get to particular places. No chance in life, please, problem. Yeah. In October of 2016, the entire camp was cleared and demolished by French authorities. For three days, bulldozers tore down shelters and other buildings. Some were set on fire, although it's unclear by whom. It was a chaotic, violent eviction, and because there were so many people living there at the time, a great deal of confusion, anger and disorganisation on all parts. In the end, around 6,000 of the nearly 10,000 people there were bussed to accommodation centres across France. The rest chose to remain under the radar, relocating to other informal camps along the northeastern coast of France, or to the streets of Paris. Within months, people were gathered in Calais again. As of the summer of 2017, around 600 settled in the wasteland near the motorway in the port, this time without any kind of infrastructure. Next on Migration Trail, exactly how much money is involved here? How much does it cost to build these walls and equip these border guards? Or, on the other side, how much does the smuggling trade make? Well, it's a huge business. They say that the money that is uh, accumulated by this uh, criminal activity, human smuggling and trafficking, actually is 
is uh, twice bigger than a combination of arm uh, trafficking, uh, drugs trafficking and uh, sex trafficking. And escape comes at a price. It's not easy. If you tell the trafficker, she can harm you and she can make you, she can lock you in a house, in a room that you can't even come out. So many of them come with only what they are wearing and they don't go back. Migration Trail is part of a 10-day real-time online experience. Go to our interactive website, migrationtrail.com, for more infographics on the issues you've heard in this episode. While you're there, you can follow reconstructed journeys based on real experiences and to see migration mapped in a whole new way. This podcast is available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher and our website, migrationtrail.com. Migration Trail is made by Alison Killing, Josie Gardner, Sarah Sae, Thomas Levestro, Asha Kamen, and Anique C. Narration by me, Marnie Chesterton. Additional fact-checking by Benjamin Thomas White. The music was composed and performed by Bora Yoon. The Migration Trail project has been funded by a Wired and the Space Creative Innovation Fellowship, the Creative Industries Fund NL, the Netherlands Film Fund, Dutch Media Fund and Arts Council England. Further support has come from the Fine Acts Foundation, Autodesk and Battersea Arts Centre.